Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 96 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today, we will be speaking to filmmaker Kristen Tiesch. She is a lover of both bicycles and bats. We have lots to discuss in this episode, everything from documentary filmmaking to waste management to her movie, The Invisible Mammal, about bats to bicycles to horror movies and even horror movies on bicycles to bat natos and a little bit of bike religion for good measure. But before we get to our show, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Alpen Ventures Unguided is an adventure travel company for experienced adventurers. It is for those people who don't need a guide. You already have the technical skills. You already have the know-how. What you do not have is that local connection, someone to help you get the most out of where you are going and help you with the complex logistics and the booking. Alpen Ventures Unguided is based in Munich, Germany, and they have in-depth local knowledge of the Alps, but also expert partners in South America. And therefore, they are able to offer roughly 30 self-guided outdoor adventures in various locations and a variety of activities. There are classic hut-to-hut hiking tours, hut-to-hut via Ferrata tours, trans-alps mountain bike tours, a bicycle tour from Munich, Germany through Austria and the Dolomites that ends in Venice, or even culinary focused hut-to-hut hiking tours in Austria. Their goal is to get you off of heavily trafficked trails and into local adventures. And since these are self Self-guided tours, you can choose your own dates, your own teammates, and your own pace. So if you are like me and you have been looking for a service to help you have adventures around the globe and not merely tourist experiences, go online, alpenventuresunguided.com. That is A-L-P-E-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S, unguided.com. And use the code GOOUTSIDENOW for a 10% discount on any of the summer 2020 Alps adventures. Go to alpenventuresunguided.com, sign up for one of their summer 2020 Alps adventures, or take a look at their other adventures in Europe or South America. And thanks again to Alpen Ventures Unguided for helping make this show possible. And with that, let's get back to the show. is Kristen Tiesch, and I live here in San Francisco. I identify very strongly with the city. It's the place of my birth, so I'm a San Franciscan, and I also am a filmmaker. I usually tell people I make films about bikes and bats, and maybe one day I'm going to make a film about bikes and bats, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll have to let that story come to me. And then, yeah, so currently I'm making a film called The Invisible Mammal, which is about bats taking me across uh, the United States so far. Canada is the next stop. I'm looking forward to being out and about discovering new bat habitats this year. So tell us a little bit about where we are now, because if people listening don't know, as we met you at your place right near mm-hmm. Golden Gate Park this morning after you 
tried to hack off your finger. Yes. In a terrible... Domestic uh, incident. (laughs) (laughs) And then you chose specifically for us to come to the area where we are because it seems like it holds some sort of special place to you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where we are and why we are here. I had three bicycles in my house and luckily there are three of us on this urban adventure uh, today. So we rode from my house and we rode down to the Cliff House and we parked our bikes there, made a bike pile. And then we walked to the trailhead at Land's End, which is a beautiful park just, you know, at the tip of San Francisco, overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And you can see the Golden Gate Bridge from many vantage points on this hike. I used to live really close to the beach from 95 to 2003, about two blocks from Ocean Beach. Pretty much every weekend I did this trail and it was just my place to kind of escape everything and give myself some time to just contemplate life and the universe and where I am and my place in it, you know, while I had the chance to also be in nature and experience these beautiful views and listen to the ocean and slow things down a bit. So when you said you were coming and you wanted to do an outdoor adventure, this is the first place that I thought of. So I'm glad that you were able to join me. And one of the things you mentioned before we left your place is bike religion. Ah, yes. So I think you should tell people what bike religion is. Yeah. So I just did bike religion yesterday. A friend of mine, uh, he started this, this little weekly outing. We get up at like 6.30 in the morning, 6.45 in the morning, brush our teeth and we get on our bicycles and we ride down to Ocean Beach and then touch the ocean and then spend some time kind of like just looking at the ocean. I always think of beginner's mind when I'm there, just trying to notice what's new and different about that ocean that day. It's just like a a good way to kind of start the weekend, really. You know, you've just experienced the entire work week, and this is the first moment that you get to kind of think about like slowing down again. We spend, you know, like maybe 20 minutes just like looking at the ocean, and touching the water is like part of it because that's when we get to connect with the whole earth because the oceans connect all of the continents and so since we're here at the Pacific Ocean this is the chance that I get once a week to go touch all of the rest of the world you know <laughs> well I think it's appropriate too because kind of half jokingly you all call it bike religion yeah but it is very much a ritual like you've set up this ritual we get up around this time we ride the bike to this place we touch the water mm-hmm. like these are the things we do yeah it's definitely a ritual and I didn't create it and I didn't create the name so this is this is one of those things that like I love to join because I, I'm often an organizer and I'm often responsible for you know organizing people and getting people together to do things but this in this case I'm a follower so you get to get a break yeah a it's a break and I'm also a follower I'm a follower of this bike religion <laughs> you know I'm not the leader I'm the follower my friend Preston kind of created this weekly ride and you know it's usually just a small handful of people. I mean, every once in a while we get like five people, but usually it's about three or four people. He's also kind of one of these esoteric, you know, kind of poetic type of people. So I think that for him, it's definitely a spiritual experience, you know, and riding a bike is a a spiritual experience. (laughs) It really is. You know, riding a bike is really a spiritual experience, as is walking. Walking is a meditation. And one of the things that I posted about yesterday when I I did Bike Religion yesterday is that um, I also think picking up trash on the beach is a spiritual experience. You know, it's also meditative because it really brings you into that present moment. You know, you're thinking like, there's a bottle cap, you know, I'm going to pick it up. 
and you're, you're, be, you're being mindful of that and you pick it up and you put it in your pocket and then you see a candy wrapper and you pick it up and you put it in your pocket and yesterday I found a CD cover and I actually like took a picture of it because I thought about like I'm like whose CD was this what music were they listening to was it a favorite album like you know what was this and so now here it is and it's it's on the beach you know and how did it end up here and then I just think of the fact that I'm now rescuing it from the Pacific garbage patch because it's like as I pick up these little pieces of trash on the beach the waves are coming and would have taken these you know tiny pieces of plastic out to sea or maybe they were in the Pacific garbage patch and they ended up in San Francisco. I think it's kind of cool how you're not only just thinking of trash as a thing that you have to remove and deal with and take care of, but you're also interested in the history of it yeah. and it, how it's connected to whoever its previous owner yeah. was. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, especially that CD cover. You know, I kind of placed it down on the beach and then I opened it up, you know, and stuck it in the sand and it was kind of like the window to the world and stuff too, looking at the, the water through the CD cover. So yeah, and then basically it's a reminder of our role as humans, you know, on this planet, we have to be stewards, you know, of the planet as well. When I pick up the trash, you know, on the beach during the bike religion, it's a reminder of my role, you know, as a human. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to, to mention. And so I'm going to take us on a quick tangent for a second, because in society, of course, people always complain about whatever generation is after them and how they're not responsible and they don't know anything about personal responsibility. But collectively, we like to espouse the importance of personal responsibility until it comes to trash. Somehow we don't see ourselves as responsible for the remains of the objects that we consume. Yeah. It's interesting just thinking about like the connection to the other people, but then also just that responsibility of recognizing, hey, we made this trash, whether it was me or somebody else, and it is my responsibility to to do something with it and get get it out of the system. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing for people to remember. Responsibility includes your waste. Responsibility definitely includes waste and you know it's so hard to escape waste you know and as much as I want to be zero waste I can't be it's just impossible to be zero waste I know people who are better at it than I am a friend of mine just yesterday was posting about all the things she does to avoid plastic and I have tried all of these things and I do some of them sometimes so I don't do them all the time there's this one dairy company called Strauss that makes you know you can go to Whole Foods and you can buy your milk in reusable glass bottles or your you know the cream for your coffee and so so you buy those use it and then you bring the bottle back and so then you're not throwing away you know either plastic or you know milk carton and then she goes the extra step of making yogurt with her own yogurt with her milk that she buys and I have tried that but I have such a small kitchen because I'm a, an apartment dweller I actually just measured the, the the square footage of my apartment it's 582 square feet so wait how did you get that precise my landlord came in with a laser oh and no we, kidding yeah we we figured out what the square so footage 582 precisely yeah, okay. yeah my kitchen is tiny so I've tried to make yogurt in my kitchen and I've done it several times and it ends up just being very very messy just don't think I have enough space so I really want to live to see the day where all yogurt containers are come you know are reusable glass you know bottles as well there's only a few brands that make yogurt in reusable glass bottles and they're not my favorite yogurts unfortunately this is my one you know piece of guilt you know my plastic <laughs> life is that I am a I'm a yogurt consumer and I love 
like yogurt a lot, so I buy a lot of plastic yogurt containers. Well, to make you feel better about yourself, we battle with this same thing. Just remember, there's an entire infrastructure built around plastic, and it takes a long time to change an infrastructure. Yes. So as long as you're working towards it, yeah. you don't have to feel as guilty if you aren't meeting your goals every day. Yeah, and the other thing about it is that there's other things that come in plastic containers that I refuse to buy. Peanut butter or tahini. I never, ever, ever buy any drink that's in a plastic bottle. Like, if it's in a plastic bottle, I won't buy it. If there's a can version of it or a glass bottle version of it, I'll do that. But even then, I try not to even buy drinks. You know, you can either bring your own water with you in a, in a reusable bottle. You make yourself a cup of tea and bring your own, you know, cup along with you or something. And so I try to just not buy anything in glass bottles. But it's sort of like an every once in a while, like if you're on a road trip or, you know, something like that. Yes. So now that I've completely derailed you, away from speaking about yourself. No, I can talk about waste. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. <laughs> no, it's it's funny because it's very much in the zeitgeist now because I think very few episodes in the last year of this podcast have passed where we don't end up talking about plastic or waste or yeah. something and at some point during the discussion. It's a huge problem. It is. The fact that it's this much in discussion makes me not necessarily confident, but hopeful that that means we're heading in the right direction and things are yeah. changing. You know, I have a lot of faith in the younger generations. Younger generations are, are fed up with us, you know, in our wasteful ways. Not to say that they're saints, you know, because nobody's a saint. But there's a lot of vision. There's a lot of young people, too. So it's like a growing, you know, population. And they're coming at us with a vengeance. So. I think it's so easy to look at younger people and then just fixate on the things about youth that you hate, forget that you participated in those same things, whether it's yeah. like disrespectfulness, lack of responsibility, yeah. any, any of those sorts of things that people like to forget that they once participated in also, and then just focus on those things about young people and say how they're worse than your generation. Mm-hmm. But I think if you stop and look, just like you're saying, I've noticed a lot of things in younger people that give me a lot of hope a about lot. what they might do and little things too. I've, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like I see more camaraderie in some ways, mm-hmm. even though people people claim they don't talk to each other because they're only on quote-unquote social media or whatever. From what I see is they're less likely to bully each other. They're more supportive of each other and and things that our generation and definitely the generation before us were less likely to do. As much as people want to complain about helicopter parenting and, and things... I do wonder if the like newest generation is more empathetic than I, previous yeah. generations. I know from my niece's experience that they're actually being taught better in school. Like my 17-year-old niece has like a class about cultural studies or ethnic studies in high school. I never knew anything about about that until I think got to college, maybe second or third year of college or something. And then all of a sudden I was learning about just new ideas and new ways of looking at culture. And this, you know, this is because A, you know, I had to go to nine years of Catholic school. Let's just start there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So there was a lot that I didn't learn. (laughs) There's a lot of science that I also didn't learn in Catholic school. There are certain things you did learn. There's a lot about like religious tolerance that I also didn't learn um, in Catholic school. And then we were going back to like this teenage years and the youth like being rebellious and stuff. Like I was a super duper rebel as a result of having gone to nine years of Catholic school. So I finally busted out of Catholic school and got to public school. And I think that was like the first time that I was actually able to 
breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> but I do remember my my rebel years, you know, and how I knew that I was right and I had to rebel against, you know, everything because I knew that I was right. And that's just, you know, part of growing up. You see what's wrong and you have to rebel against it because you know that it's not right. Like knowing that that I went through that period so strongly and and it's something that like forms me to be the person that I am today. I have a lot of like open-heartedness for young people and the struggles that they, you know, are going through these days and I just have become so inspired by the youth movements against gun violence and and then also the climate. These youth movements are so strong and I have not seen anything like that ever because I wasn't alive during the 60s. Right. So it's it's this new thing and the, especially the climate movement is a global movement and the anti gun violence, you know, and the gun control uh, movement among young people, that's like in our country, in the United States, because that's really the only country in the world that deals with this epidemic of, of violence. So when I see what they're doing, and obviously you probably heard that the global climate movement was inspired by Emma and the Parkside students, you know, the gun, the gun violence uh, movement that happened there. And that was, that inspired a lot of climate activists to get started too, young young climate activists to get started with their movement. You know, I feel like there's a lot of conviction with the younger generations. I, like I said, I don't think they're saints at all. And I don't, I think that there's a lot of internet bullying that we don't know about, you know, because I'm not on Snapchat and I'm, you know, I don't use social media the way that young people use social media, but there definitely is a lot of internet bullying that goes on, social media bullying. And so I'm not going to say that they're saints, but there definitely is a lot of conviction in towards the world that they want to live in. All we can do as, you know, adults of different generations is support them because they're they're just wanting to build the world that they want to live in. Yeah, and guide them. Yeah, mm-hmm. because when you just chastise them and tell them how things were different, and you know, all of us at this table, me, you, and Erica, we're all we're all getting to that point where we're either are middle aged or we're approaching it. Middle aged. Yeah, yeah. Same Squarely. Here. Yep. <laughs> same here. So. <laughs> so it's very easy to get in that point where like, well, this is different. Things change. Life changes. If it didn't, that would be the problem. Mm-hmm. The fact that things are changing isn't the problem. The fact that we refuse to adapt to those changes is the problem. Right. Yeah. With younger people, supporting them, recognizing that things are changing and then trying to help guide them, I think is far more beneficial than telling them how things were 20, 30 years ago and bemoaning that they aren't that way anymore. Yeah. And then having the humility to admit that, you know, maybe we weren't right. Maybe we made a mistake, you know, and we shouldn't have done things a certain way. I wasn't totally climate aware, you know, until maybe I saw an inconvenient truth and that that was what, like 2005 or something? 2004? When did Inconvenient Truth come out? That sounds about right. Somewhere in the early 2000s. I think a lot of people would mark that moment. And I think some people think that's when it became a topic that people were aware of. But it wasn't because I remember in high school or in the early 90s, when I was a kid, there were already discussions. They just weren't calling it climate change. They called it global or, warming. Sometimes they weren't even calling it that yet. But I mean, even when you look back at old movies like Waterworld, the whole mm-hmm. concept of that movie was that we heated the earth, we melted the ice caps, and the and the earth was covered in water. Yeah. We've been aware of it for quite a long time. Yeah. We've just waited a long time to do something yeah, about it. Yeah, two things. So you may not remember, but in Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, there's a reference to global warming. Oh, is there? And that's 1990, I believe. Sounds right? about right. Somewhere. 
somewhere around there. Yeah. 89, 1989. Yeah. So he references global warming in Do the Right Thing. And actually, the fact is, is that scientists have known about the effects of carbon dioxide on global surface temperatures since the 1800s, since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, there are documents popping up that yeah. indicate for quite some time They've people known. have known that this could be an, an issue or had an inkling that something would be Yeah, an, no, an they've issue. known. They've known that there's a direct correlation and it's been a massive, you know, centuries long cover up, I guess. I mean, this was what, so the Industrial Revolution in the 1870s and now we're 2020, 150 years of cover up. <laughs> What we've known about the petrochemical industry, and we've just sort of allowed it to happen. Well, comfort and complacency are very powerful things. Well, and being lied to. Lies are very powerful. Or just not ever being told the truth. We're still not being told the truth. The issue of climate in America, on American media, is not being delivered to Americans in the way that it should be. We should have, like, daily coverage of climate change. The CO2 parts per million now is 413. A few months ago, it was like 410. And so a year ago this time, it was 405. It's like nobody's talking about this. We're already headed to an irreversible trend and nobody's talking about it on American media. Well, here's a, here's a question for you because there are certain groups of people that would argue the opposite and say they're sick of hearing about it and people talk about it too much and they think it's blown out of proportion or that they don't trust science for whatever reason. Oh, what, what are well, your responses to those people? Here's the thing is that the reason why people don't want to hear about it mostly is that it causes anxiety and depression. When people hear about, you know, this doom and gloom, most people have what they call a, like a pool of worry, the things that they're allowed to worry about on a certain day. And so it's like making, you know, your rent payments. If you're, if you have any medical ailments or health issues, you know, are your children safe? You know, you know, a few other things that you allow yourself to worry about on a daily basis. This other thing that creeps in, which is irreversible climate change, is outside of their pool of worry because they have way more immediate right. things that they have to worry about. The things that they theoretically yeah. can actively And then in addition adjust. to in addition to that, like the doom and gloom, the talk about doom and gloom makes people depressed and people are already depressed about so many things. I mean, first of all, so many people and you know that this is another thing that we're lied to about is how many people actually suffer from mental illnesses and, and depression. It's it's so common, you know, and yet we still treat it like, you know, everybody's supposed to just walk around being normal all the time, right? What is normal? There are also still plenty of groups of people that have stigmas against it and they're yeah. embarrassed if they have a yeah. mental problem. Exactly. Or, yeah. And then so in addition, this idea that like we're facing irreversible climate change is something that causes people even more feelings of depression and so people don't want to hear about that so you were asking like well what about these people most of the time they don't they just don't want to hear this news because it's depressing and it's outside of their pool of worry then my response to that is that well we need to start reporting more on the positive sides of the story right, like right so, that so they can see things are, are changing things are changing but like hey you know what we have solutions mm -hmm. we ha we actually have solutions and that if we could implement these solutions like right away, we could avoid, we could still, like scientists are still saying, you know, maybe we have like five years left or something now, like before it's irreversible. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's tough to think about, you know, today. It's like when we have, 
you know, Donald Trump in office, who's a climate denier and, you know, Putin, who's going to, you know, basically interfere in our elections again. And Boris Johnson was just elected. And then there's there's lots of other right wing populist leaders, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil. And so it's it's depressing, you know, like we're like, how are we going to do this? But we have to just keep keep our eyes on the prize. And then we also have to support young people going back to this. It's like the young people know that they are inheriting a really fucked up world. So you said I could swear. So I'm swearing. <laughs> you know, I've, I've censored myself in other interviews and stuff that I've done on this subject. But right now I'm not going to censor myself. So the world is fucked up and, and they're inheriting this world. And, you know, if we can, you know, continue to support young people in their efforts to create the future that they want to live in which, you know, is clean energy future, clean transportation future, so much more, like a future that has biodiversity, future that has clean water, future without plastic. You know, these are, this is like all part of this movement, you know, this this global climate movement, youth movement. In this country, it's part of the Green New Deal. We have a responsibility then to contact our senators and our congresspeople and tell them, like, we support the Green New Deal and we want you to support that as well, you know, in all of your legislation. So that's how, that's one thing that we can do. And then as filmmakers because I'm a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker, a media maker and stuff, then we also have a responsibility to tell positive stories, you know, and to tell stories that aren't going to depress people, that are going to basically make people, like, stop and think and be like, you know what, we can do this. I think think there are also solutions that can be positive are just solutions that might be fun to participate in. Like one of the solutions is to get more trees and more plant life. Mm -hmm. And that's something you can get people on board whether they believe or not in Mm -hmm. climate change. So if you can get groups of people to get out and plant trees together, that's a great experience to have with your family, your friends, whatever, Mm -hmm. where you get out, you're planting trees, you're doing something that's beneficial. Even if you don't believe in climate change, you can believe that planting a tree is a good thing. So we can all agree on some of these things and work towards them regardless. I mean, trees are beautiful. They provide shade. You know, some of them provide fruit or other things to eat. I have a a business as well, and I, I work with clients. And what I do every year around the holidays is I plant trees for my clients. You know, I say thanks for your business this year, you know, and as a result of us doing business together, I've planted a hundred trees in your name, you know, so looking forward to more projects next year. And And how often do they say, no, I don't want you. Nobody ever says no. Exactly. (laughs) Most people write back and say, that is so thoughtful. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So one of the things I told you was you'd be talking about yourself a lot. And here we are half an hour in. I know. I know. (laughs) Brought us on a tangent and got us talking about political issues and social issues and environmental issues and all these things. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring us back about you. So clearly there are a number of things. You've got a strong draw to the city, to San Francisco that we're in. You've got a strong draw to bicycles, to bats, and to environmental issues. But you clearly weren't just born interested in all of those things. Mm -hmm. So let's rewind and discuss kind of your path through life that has kind of brought you to all these different aspects of your life and how they overlap and have come together. I can see the hospital where I was born from the window of my living room. And so that kind of also grounds me in my location. Just to kind of put your listeners in the atmosphere that we're in. When we started this interview, we were sitting in an empty patio, but now the sun's come out and everybody's enjoying the outdoors with us as well. So there's probably a lot of 
of chatter of people in the background enjoying this lovely patio in uh, the Land's End area of San Francisco. But yeah, going back to my childhood, there's two things is that I think I've always just been an animal lover. The first story that I ever wrote was about a bird. I wrote a short story. It was like a a paragraph long about a bird, a mother bird and her baby bird. I look back on that and I'm like, oh, that's really interesting that like even at the age of like five, I was writing stories about wildlife. And were you growing up in San Francisco? I grew up in Marin County. Okay, so you went there after you were born in that hospital. I was born in the hospital, (laughs) but I grew up in Mill Valley in Marin County. And Mill Valley is very, it's like a mountainous town and there's redwoods and it's very beautiful. I also knew when I was growing up that I would lived in a very special place. Yeah, so I always like innately had a love for animals and that is something I think you're just born with. It's your personality. And I still love animals like so much, you know, like I really love animals. (laughs) I'm a vegetarian too. And then on top of all of that, like my dad, he was really into camping. And so he had like a VW bus. He had a few different ones over the years. And we would take off on like five to six week camping trips across the country in the summer. That's pretty nice. Yeah. So when I was a kid, like often we would spend the whole summer just driving around national parks and state parks, you know, across the United States and camp. And I got to kind of experience the great outdoors that way. So how were your parents able to take off that much time? Were they, were they teachers? <laughs> no. were, they, were they just quit jobs? Like, because people hear five, six weeks and like, how does that happen? My dad is a character. He's like a <laughs> an interesting person. He was in advertising and he's a, he was creative. And I always tell people like he's kind of like a Don Draper, although he's not Don Draper. But in, this, in many ways, he's kind of like Don Draper. But my parents actually met on Madison Avenue you know, in the 60s while they were both working at an advertising agency. And then they moved out here. But I think it's just because my dad is like a creative person and because he's kind of like Don Draper and he was really good at what he did. I think he just told his boss, like, I'm leaving. For the summer, I'll be back. And they just sort of said, okay, you know, and so that, yeah, so that was what he did. And then my mom would spend that time and go back visiting her brothers and sisters or family like in New York. And sometimes we would spend the summer in New York and stuff. These summers, like my dad would just take me and my brother on these, on these cross country trips. And we got to experience wildlife. Like my dad was also obsessed with wildlife himself. Like I remember one summer we went on a trip and he wanted to see a bear and so the whole summer we were like in search of a bear we went to all the parks and everywhere we went we were just constantly looking for a bear so we could say we saw a bear I think we were like in the Tetons or something and like my brother and I were like in an inflatable raft or something on a lake and my dad went walking around with his camera and he saw a bear and we didn't and that was the only bear that we saw that summer so he saw it but we never saw the bear you know yeah so those memories and stuff as well you know were pivotal in my experience with wildlife and my love for wildlife and making films about 
nature and connecting with nature and my own self-commitment for continuing this uh, relationship that I have with nature and, and wildlife and my, my natural surroundings. So how did the filmmaking come about? Was that something you started toying with at this time in life or did this come later? Uh, it came a little bit later. I've always been a film lover and I didn't major in film in college in my undergrad. I majored in French literature actually and history. But I think that my major in college like ended up just sort of being something that I had the most units in. So I ended up like just picking them as my major so I could graduate. <laughs> Not to say that I don't love literature and history. I love both literature and history. I went to UC San Diego and the program at UC San Diego just in terms of like filmmaking and video production like just wasn't really what I was looking for. So then after, after UCSD, I was a teacher for two years and I taught uh, French at, in high school. And this is another reason why I have such an understanding of young people is that like when I was 23, I had to teach 14 year olds, 14 to 18 year olds. And so it was like very quickly after I was their age, I was having to re-understand what they were going through. You know, being a teacher for two years and stuff was kind of like another experience that just changed my whole perspective. So I was in, living in Mississippi. I did the Teach for America program and they placed me in Mississippi. And I knew that I didn't want to live in Mississippi because I'm from here and I'm not used to humidity and I was just like miserable in like 100, 100 degree weather with like 100% humidity and I was just like yeah I don't think I would have made it too far yeah I, I, I think I've mentioned this to you before but you know I grew up in Louisiana right yeah so the first 25 years of my life were putting up with that humidity it's so hot I, and I then totally understand you just can't certain days you're just like I just can't I'm just gonna lie down <laughs> for the rest of the day. And then also, like, I'm definitely a city girl and I, I love being in a place where there's a lot happening. You know, where I was in Mississippi was the Delta and there's, like, nothing, not a lot of culture happening there. It's not year-round culture anyway. There's, like, cultural festivals that happen, like the blues and things like that. When I came back to San Francisco after two years of living there, it, then it was kind of like a soul-searching time, and I started taking a lot of classes to kind of figure out what my next move was going to be. I was reminded how much I really liked being creative. I took a lot of creative writing classes and uh, did a lot of writing, and then I thought to myself, like, well, what could I do where I could actually make a living doing something creative and that's how I landed on filmmaking not that you make a lot of money being a filmmaker <laughs> but I you knew either that you make a lot or you don't <laughs> yeah I knew that there was an industry that I could yeah. become involved with and that I could create a career doing this and in 1998 I went back to school I did a graduate program in upstate New York at Syracuse University the Newhouse School and so, yeah, I was there uh, 1998 to 99, and then I came back and I jumped right in and I started working. Yeah, and you do a mix of film, right? For instance, you're doing a documentary about bats that we're going to talk about a lot very mm -hmm. soon. But you also have a history doing horror films and yes. other sorts of narrative fiction, correct? So the horror film is called The Spinster, and it is also a bicycle film. So I told you I make <laughs> films about bikes, so I call it my feminist horror film on bikes. Well, let's talk about The Spinster, because I love The Spinster. In fact, fact, I'll send you a link to the spinster. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> You'll have to see this movie. <laughs> it's my favorite movie that I've ever created. <laughs> and one day I'm going to make more 
horror films. Oh, I thought you were going to say more in the Spinster saga. I that oh, all they? follow this oh, nice. saga. So, so the Spinster happened because another filmmaker friend of mine and I, you know, we were having coffee, just kind of like what we're doing right now. We were both talking about how complicated filmmaking is, and like how you need so much money, and you need this crew, and it's you know it takes so much time, and you know. And then I said to her, I said, well, what if we just, what if we both made a short film this year, and like we just committed to making a film in a year and just did it. We kind of accepted the challenge and so I went home and started thinking and you know there was this image that I had had in my mind and it was kind of like this thing that I wanted to play out one day in reality and it was this image of like this kind of ghoulish woman riding a bicycle holding a severed head and I know this (laughs) This doesn't have anything to do with getting outside, but it does. Look, <laughs> because you're on a bicycle. Look, maniacs have to get outside, too. You can't yes. just kill people in your house only. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was just like I had this image and I thought like, you know, first I had thought about it as performance art. Like I was like, what if one day I got dressed up, you know, had this severed head and I rode my bike around San Francisco holding this severed head and I and just to see what people would say. And I was like, what if I did that? And then instead of ever doing that, I wrote a screenplay about around this character. So I just... This was probably the best decision you could have made. Right? Is not do it for real and instead write a screenplay. Exactly. So anyway, so then I started developing this image character around this person. So I said, who is this person? You know, what does she want? What is her story? This was in 2012. And by this point, I had also stopped dating. I stopped dating because I I decided dating was a waste of time. Okay. (laughs) Because it was a lot of time wasted, you know, and I decided that, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna waste time dating anymore there's a lot of fish in the sea right and then it's a lot of like kissing toads or whatever right you know what I mean and then I realized like there was a lot of emotional energy being spent on something that I shouldn't be spending all of my energy on you know because it's like you know you're always looking for a partner or whatever and then I said you know what I've just spent too much time looking I'm gonna stop doing that this is in 2010 I was like I'm gonna stop dating and I'm gonna start making films So I had made another film before The Spinster, and it was called Forms of Identification, and I made that in 2011. And it was an experimental dance film about identity crisis, and um, that's why it's called Forms of Identification. And that one you can also see, you can watch it online, it's free, just, you know, uh, formsofidentification.com. 2012, I I had already stopped dating, (laughs) so now back to The Spinster. So I decided that, like, you know, one of the things that people always used to say to me when I told them that I stopped dating people always said oh don't say that you know you know you'll meet someone someday and I'm like stop saying that to me you know I just said to myself like what if the spinster doesn't have a boyfriend because she kills all of her boyfriends (laughs) and Eric is laughing right now because she knows you know the feeling I mean, she threatens to kill me pretty much daily. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, and it's just a fantasy, you know what I mean? Like, all films are like these fantasies and stuff. Just wish fulfillment, Yeah, that's all. so it's just this fantasy. It's like, oh, well, what if she kills all of her boyfriends and that's why she's a spinster? They're, they're dead. They don't last very long because they piss her off and then she's like, oops. I did it again, <laughs> you know? And so anyway, so I decided that that was her story. So she was, you know, this vixen 
and she's a, a girl bike mechanic and she meets a tall, dark and handsome guy. He turns out to be a total douchebag. And so he he meets a, an unfortunate end. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, the world is a better place. You know, I mean, she's basically saving womankind from douchebags like him. So that's her superpower. So she's a hero is what she's you're a, She's a hero. And I mean, you know, I also think the spinster was before her time. This was 2012 when I was writing it. Nowadays, there's a lot of films out there about like these anti-heroines and anti-heroes and stuff too. Like all of the Marvel, you know, comic book series. And like there's so many others. Black Widow is coming out this summer and stuff. So there's definitely a trend of this, you know, flawed heroine. Is she a heroine? Is she an, is she a villain? Is she kind of somewhere in between? Like, even, like, Killing Eve is kind of like that, too. I don't know if you've watched that series on Hulu. And so it's just these, like, these anti-heroines, you know, and that's who the spinster is. It's like, we all have good sides and, and bad sides. Like, we all have a dark side. You know, and we can all relate to that sometimes. <laughs> so that is your favorite thing you have ever made, That's my right? favorite film that I've made. That you've yeah, made? because it's, it's definitely entertaining and I love horror films. I've always loved horror films. I love the metaphor of a horror film. I used to be a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan too. See, got thumbs up from Erica. Um, <laughs> so I've just always loved this genre. I think it's a, gr- it's a great metaphor. When it's done well, it's an excellent metaphor. You know, and nowadays like the films of like Jordan Peele are like a really great metaphor for you know the African American experience in the United States and they're horror films. You know? I mean, the thing about horror films, right, is they rarely get respected, mm-hmm. but well-done horror is precisely what you're talking about, which it is some sort of entertaining, frightening way to deal with, through metaphor and analogy, mm-hmm. an issue that you can't deal with physically. Yeah. So you find some sort of physical way to represent it, right. and then people watch it, and they identify with it, and they don't necessarily always read into that, right. but for some reason, they feel the truth of it. Yeah, it gets stuck in their psyche. Now, it might seem like an odd segue, but I don't think it is based on how much you just told us about Spinster, but you love bats. Right. And you're making a film about bats, and you have bat bed sheets, and you've got bat a shower bat curtain. shower curtain, and mm-hmm. bats on your refrigerator. Bat, yeah. So, it kind of makes sense that yeah. you probably love bats. Tell us about your love for bats, and then also why you decided to make the film you're making now about mm-hmm. them. As you said, it's not too much of a stretch. I mean, I do love, you know, this dark side a little bit as well, or what is perceived as the dark side. There's two things that kind of led me to having a love for bats, and one of them is, one of them goes back to graduate school. So when I was at Syracuse uh, University, there was a pub that was on campus, and in the summer months, you know, when my friends and I would go outside and, you know, have our beers and have our veggie burgers and whatnot, look up in the sky, and the sky was filled filled with bats, you know, and there was just lots of bats in in upstate New York. And then flash forward, I think it was in 2009, I read an article that was in the New Yorker uh, by environmental journalist Elizabeth Colbert and she wrote this article that was about how bats were dying you know by the millions in, in North America due to this disease called white nose syndrome and it was first detected in upstate New York in a cave right outside of Albany and so immediately when I read this you know this article I thought about the bats that I used to love looking at you know when we were sitting out at this pub and I thought like are those bats gone 
you know, and it's very likely they are. You know, I have not been back to Syracuse to, you know, to see if there's still bats flying around at night. You know, I mean, you would just look up and the, and the whole sky was just filled with bats, right? And nowadays I wonder, are there any? You know, because these caves up in upstate New York, the little brown bats, you know, in this area have been hit heavily by white nose syndrome. And that's this, you know, fungal disease that, you know, that basically it wakes the bats up during hibernation. And then when they wake up early from hibernation, then they they wake up too early and they, they use up all of their reserves, their fat reserves, and they end up starving to death, you know, because there's nothing to eat. They eat the bugs, obviously, and there's no bugs like in the middle of winter. When I read that article, I immediately thought to myself, I should make a film about this. It was something that was always in the back of my mind. And as a filmmaker and storyteller, you know that there's there's always these stories that in the back of your mind that you know that you need to tell and they'll never go away until the day you die. You're gonna just always have these stories that you know that these are the ones that you need to tell. When I read this article, I just knew then that that telling the story about bats was something that I needed to tell. So I made forms of identification, then I made the spinster, and then after making the spinster, I think I started being more verbal about wanting to make a film about bats, and I was encouraged to because everybody, you know, everybody wants you to make that film. (laughs) They don't realize, like, how much, like, when you commit to making a film, like, how much it takes out of you. Um, It's like basically having a little baby, right? So I started making the bat film in 2014. I think I started filming bats in 2014. And then I think I applied for funding in 2015. And then I realized it's really hard to get funding to make a a documentary. Or anything. Or anything. (laughs) So I kind of put the bat project on hold but I may have started a website saying that I was going to make this film because I could you may, I thought you it, may have I, I must have <laughs> because somebody found out about my film in British Columbia and they wrote to me and said I heard you're making a film about bats and we would love to show it well and at that point I just I said you know I think I need to make this film and this it kind of came back to me at that point because somebody told me that they wanted to see it it was this woman in an, an eco center somewhere in British Columbia and so I opened up my project and I looked at you know what I had and I was like you know I'm not that far away from finishing a short film about this subject and so I just told her I said sure you know I have a 10 minute you know film that you can show she told me when they're when they were gonna do this screening you know this special event about bat- and so I just made myself finish this 10-minute short film by that date. And then that was kind of like the impetus, you know, for taking this, this show on the road. Then I started entering the film into environmental film festivals. And I think that there's something about bats. Like, there's not a, huge, a whole lot of films about bats. They're like ugly cute. They're like chihuahuas, you know, or pugs or something. They're kind of like this weird-looking face. One of the people that I interviewed said they're, you know, their face only a mother can love. (laughs) (laughs) Then the more you dive in, you're like, whoa, like bats are so fascinating. There's like 1,400 different species of bat on the planet. People think like there's just one kind of bat, you know, and that there's like a vampire bat and they suck your blood. And like, you're like, no, there's only actually one species of bat that sucks blood and it's not even interested in humans. It mostly eats blood. They mostly suck blood from the ankles of cattle 
in South America. It's just not even in the United States or Transylvania for that matter, right? The other kind of bats like are, in, I think in North America, the majority of bats are bug eating. And Which is very beneficial to most people. All Everything that bats do is beneficial <laughs> to most people, right? Here are the ecosystem services that bats provide. They eat bugs, so it's natural pest control. Bats save farmers in the United States. Like There's one estimate of $22 billion a year. I've seen estimates of like $53 billion a year. So there, in, there's... In pesticide use. In pesticide, yeah. So if there were no bats, farmers would have to use way more pesticides. And then think about the environmental right, health impacts of, of yeah. pesticide, heavy pesticide use. So there's that, right? So that's why I think it's like anywhere from like 22 to 53 billion because we don't, you know, what mm -hmm. about like these added externalized health costs right. that we're not thinking about. So then the other thing that bats do is that they pollinate. And people don't think about bats as pollinators. So yeah, maybe people should think about bats like they think about bees. Right. And if you like tequila, <laughs> you know, so there's so many things that bats pollinate. So, you know, the agave plant is one of them. Mangoes, I believe, and avocados. Things like things that people love. They're responsible for pollinating those plants. And then the other thing that they do is they're seed dispersers. So the fruit-eating bats so those are like the big-eyed bats that you see, the you know big, huge ones that are in uh, Australia, for example, and stuff. And those are the big, cute ones that look kind of like big flying dogs. <laughs> those ones, are actually, they are cute, you know? <laughs> and then there's some that like have very interesting faces. So those are fruit-eating bats. And then when they fly, they poop and they spread this, you know, seeds. You know, so they're seed dispersers, pollinators, and bug eaters. And so these are the benefits, you know, that these free ecosystem services that bats provide. And instead of thinking bats, we think that they're scary and they're a nuisance. And, you know, many, 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 many decades, humans have actually been like vandalizing bat habitats or destroying bat habitats because they think that they're a pest. We see them the same way we see rodents, mm -hmm. which is we think they're after our stuff and that they spread disease. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes, just like every other creature, they do help spread a disease and then they get remembered for that. Yeah. So let's talk about that disease. So Rabies is the disease that you're talking about. Humans are way more likely to get rabies from a dog or a cat than they are from a bat. When we're talking about bats, we're talking about this is like the second largest mammal group on Earth. And so rodents are the first largest mammal group on Earth. And then bats. And like I said, there's 1,400 different species of bats. And then when we talk about bats, we talk about colonies that are sometimes in the tens of thousands to the millions. Here's what happens. One bat is sick. And that bat... You you know, ends up like you see it lying on the ground or, you know, it gets disoriented and ends up in your house. And then people think that all bats are like that. And that's just one sick, disoriented bat. So if you ever see a bat on the ground or in your house, do not go near it because it is very likely a sick bat. It's sort of like, you know, people like when you are about to travel in a different country and then your doctor tells you when you go to, you know, that country, like don't pet street animals because you'll probably end up with a disease. And it's the same thing. It's like if you see a bat, like do not touch it. 
you know, call animal care and control. Here in California, you call, or in Northern California, you call an organization called NorCal Bats, which will come, they'll send somebody to come and rescue that bat out of your house, and then they'll bring it into rescue, or if it's sick, if it's something, a bat that definitely tests positive for rabies, then there's, you know, other, you know, measures that need to be taken. But, like, if it's not sick, they'll rehabilitate that bat and bring it back to health. But, yeah, do not ever touch a bat if you see a bat lying on the ground. The movie you're making yeah. is called The Invisible Mammal. The Invisible Correct. Mammal. Tell us about that title. At the time, like, you know, in 2013 or 2014, when I started thinking about making this film about bats, I was actually reading The Invisible Man. Like, hatred, you know, when you hate something, it, it comes from fear. You know, it comes from fear of the unknown. Of course, you know, I'm not, like, equating the African-American experience in the United States to the experience that bats have in the United States. But what I am equating is the fear, the fear of bats and the hatred of bats, because people still do carry a fear and hatred of bats, like, whether we like it or not. That is very similar, you know, and so it's like if, you, if you're if you afraid of something or you hate something, sometimes you you destroy it or you do, you just do something something bad. That's where the title came from. It got into my brain and and the connection started happening and I realized that this fear, it's the same. That fear is the same. And so if we could get over our fear by understanding better, you know, then maybe we wouldn't, you know, behave this way. So anyway, so I I liked the name and I decided that that was what the name of the the film was going to be, The Invisible Mammal. And then on top of it, like people really don't know that much about bats. And so they come out at night. They do everything that they do, you know, in North America is usually happening at night. They leave at sunset. You know, a lot of the times people are already home having dinner and stuff. And then the bats fly around and they eat all the bugs, you know, that would eat our crops. Before we wake up, they come back home and they go into their habitats and and roost and hide. We don't see them, you know. And then in addition, because of the fear that we have about bats, like we've never really spent that much time studying, like, all the amazing things that they do. This film will talk about, you know, these amazing things that they do because I'm following these bat researchers who are trying to stop the spread of white nose syndrome by supporting bat habitats in different ways. And they have all told me that as a result of this disease white nose syndrome, which is now threatening like entire populations of some bat species in certain areas. So we are talking about potential extinction, if not extirpation. So they say that because of all this funding that's going into stop the spread of white nose syndrome, that there's all of these other opportunities to learn about bat behavior. Where do the bats go? Like a lot of the times they don't know when they go from one roost to the next, their winter habitats to their summer habitats, they haven't had a real way to track bats because they've never tracked them before, you know? And so they're learning all of this new stuff about, like, bat behavior. And so the film will also just uncover this kind of, like, secret life, this invisible life of bats as well. So it's... So the word invisible, you know, does, you know, cover these two meanings. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing is that what I've realized is a lot of the times when I when I tell people bats are mammals, 
they don't even think of bats as mammals. Right. And then people start asking me, well, they don't know. Like, well, they have one baby per year. They have one baby per, per year, which is why it's so hard for their populations to rebound when, you know, 90% of like a colony of bats has been wiped out. Well, that's going to take generations for that colony to, to bounce back. And they also don't know, you know, that certain bat species live 30 years for this little tiny creature. These bats are like amazing that they're able to live that long, you know, and this little tiny creature creature and they go out for 30 years and eat bugs and so they're our neighbors you know they're our friends and neighbors and so we need to learn how to love bats so tell us a bit about the process of making this how you're going about shooting it who you're working with what's happened in the last year or so while you've been actively working on it when i started out earlier in 2019 when matt from wildlands talked me into making a feature <laughs> because i was previous guest on this show <laughs> Because I was like, oh gosh, you know, feature-length documentary, that's, it's a lot of work. I've edited a lot of feature-length documentaries, and I know that sometimes that's like a five to ten year endeavor. What I always tell people, if they want to make any sort of movie, film, whatever, calculate how long they think it's going to take, and then triple it. Yeah, I'm trying to finish The Invisible Mammal by 2022, and I think I can do that. So back in 2019, after Matt talked me into making a feature-length film about about bats, um, which is also called The Invisible Mammal, so the short was The Invisible Mammal, and then the feature is also going to be The Invisible Mammal. I contacted Bat Conservation International, because I know that they've been doing really great work about white nose syndrome, and in particular, there was one study that was called the Fat Bat Study. These are researchers, a team of researchers, that they're doing this work in Michigan's Upper Peninsula and in Manitoba. I've just learned that they're expanding the study in Manitoba. These are both areas where white nose syndrome is killing a huge number of the bat populations there, and mostly these little brown bats, the little brown bat species. And so their goal, the fat bat study, is to, to basically enhance the habitat to create optimal conditions for bats to thrive. When I went to film them in Michigan, and these are Bat Conservation International scientists, so I got permission to film their study and to follow these scientists through Bat Conservation International. They're going to Michigan and they're creating these bug buffets, they're calling them, by raising UV lights into the trees near the entrances to the abandoned copper mines in this region. And so bats have been using for you know many, many, many years uh, these abandoned copper mines as uh, winter hibernacula. This is where the bats hibernate for the winter. So at the entrances to the mine, they've been raising these lights up that will attract the bugs, you know, to the light. And therefore, bats, like, don't have to spend as much energy looking for bugs. The bugs will be concentrated in this area because they're all flocking to this UV light. There's a period right before bats go into hibernation, and this is what I've learned through doing this film, called the fall swarm. <laughs> so during this period, bats like put on you know the majority of their body weight that's going to sustain them through uh, hibernation. So what the, bat, the fat bat study is trying to do is make the bats even fatter because what they learn, I know it's a good visual, a fat bat, right? <laughs> It's like a Santa so Claus cute, of bats. Right? It's like you just think about it. You're like Pot cute. Pot-bellied bats. Yeah, yeah you know, these little roly-poly bats. So, See, that's what they need. They need pot-bellied bat stuffed mm -hmm. animals yeah. that they sell 
to families to help fund this research. Yeah, but then that's creating more waste, and so <laughs> we don't is, want to go there. Yeah, that is true. What they have learned, you know, from previous studies is that bats that are fat, even if they get white nose syndrome, the fungus wakes them up, you know, several times throughout hibernation. So what happens is that fungus is irritating and so bats will wake up, you know, during hibernation, but the fungus causes them to wake up more often because, yeah, it's a fungus. Anybody who has had athlete's foot or any other kind of like fungus, and I usually say this to when I'm talking to audiences, is that any woman sitting out there knows how irritating a fungus can be. <laughs> yeah, just, just think about just think about athlete's foot or jock itch on your yeah. face. Yes. It wakes you up at night and you're like irritated by this and this is, this is what's happening. So the bats are in hibernation and then every time they come out of hibernation, that's when they burn, you know, most of that, that stored energy. When they're waking up more often, they're burning up all of their energy more quickly. And so that's what leads to their demise. So if the bat is fat enough, they are able to make it through to spring. And when they leave the hibernacula, are flying around when it's warm enough, I guess the fungus just burns off in the drier weather. And that's what, I, that's what I've learned. And so that's what the film is going to be exploring, is these efforts to create optimal habitat, you know, for bats and to see whether or not their field studies are successful or not. And if this is a solution that could provide hope for America's bats. So you have an estimated two years left Mm -hmm. before you hope this is completed. So what remains in the future that is left to be done over that two year period? Or just in general, what all, I mean, are you actively editing as you shoot or are you uh, still shooting and then you're going to start editing later? Really good question. Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) So I don't want to edit this film because I'm strongly in the camp of if you produce and direct and shoot a film you should hire somebody else to edit it because you need creative input you know because otherwise it's too too much like from your own point of view and you need to have fresh creative collaborator there's also that other danger which is when you devote so much time to all the other elements and then you have to also devote the time to editing which you think well I know the story best so I'll be the most efficient editor what ends up happening often you put it on the back burner or you just you get burnt out yeah so you start cutting corners and just trying to finish because you're sick of doing all these tasks exactly all of that is true and so i so i'm going to end up hiring an editor and i've talked to a couple people and i definitely want to hire an editor who's like a a wildlife film editor an environmental film editor somebody who shares my values and my perspective what remains to be done is that um, there's three locations that I'm filming in, or four now. So now there's four locations where I'm filming. So we're filming in, as I mentioned, Michigan Upper Peninsula. And that's where they're going to doing this fat bat study. So I filmed last year in Upper Peninsula. Uh, but they were just doing the proof of concept. This year they're going to start kind of doing the study for real. And that's a non-scientific term. For real is not a scientific term. So, <laughs> so they're doing the study so for real. So we have real. begun the for fake process of our study. We will begin no, the for real the process, for real process. In the future. <laughs> so, okay, so they're going to do this for real this, this year. Um, so I'll be going back to document the work there. And I started working with this really great cinematographer. His name is Skip Hobby. And he's, I found him through Bat Conservation International. He's, he's a wildlife filmmaker from um, Austin, Texas and he's also a bat advocate and 
and so he loves bats and he's filmed the bats at Bracken Cave which is another one of my locations that I filmed in 2019 and Bracken Cave is a cave outside of San Antonio Texas that is home to 20 million Mexican free-tailed bats and I think when I met with you in at the Wildlands retreat I talked about the bat NATO so oh, yeah, 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 yeah. so Bracken Cave is the home of the bat NATO and so I got to go you know and film there with Skip and uh, my friend Melissa came with me so we were filming and you know recording audio you have to explain to everybody what the bat NATO uh, is the bat of the bat NATO <laughs> so at sunset there's 20 million Mexican pretail bats and they don't all leave at the same time but they start this emergence you know at sunset and when they exit the mouth of Bracken Cave, they start flying in in a vortex, you know, and they're it's a circular movement, and I don't I don't know exactly why they do it, but then they circle, 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 circle up, and then when they get up high enough, then they fly out over the fields to start eating all those moths. But when they exit the cave, they're doing this circular movement, and and it looks like a batnado, it looks like a tornado. But it, they call it the Batnado. And people come, like tourists come to see this, you know, natural phenomenon. And it's beautiful. You know, it's really stunning. It's sunset and there's like, you know, light in the bat's wings. And, you know, and then there's like other kinds of wildlife that try to pick off the bats, like snakes and raccoons and hawks and, you know, other predatory birds. We filmed there. This part of the film is going to be really crucial for that that moment where people, you know, look at bats in a new light, you know, they see bats and they see something that's beautiful that they would want to go see themselves. So the bats in Bracken Cave, they don't hibernate. Mexican free-tailed bats, you know, do not hibernate, but they migrate. And so they end up sharing bat habitats with other species that do hibernate. The fungus that causes white nose syndrome, it's called PD, and I don't know the I don't know how to pronounce the Latin <laughs> But you um, will learn. You know, I've I'm heard sure it so many will. times, and I prefer to just refer, refer to it as PD. <laughs> That's what, you know, most people refer to it as. But it has been detected in Bracken Cave, and this fungus has now been detected in California as well. So the disease is now bicoastal. It's like, you know, from coast to coast, north to south, east to west. So it's pretty much reached all corners of the continent. And they think that, you know, when scientists look at the jumps, so, you know, how did it get? from, you know, Minnesota to this Washington state, they think it's probably, it could have been from a person, but that distance also could have been transferred by a bat. Like there are bats that migrate that far. So that's why I'm saying these Mexican free-tailed bats, you know, could then become carriers. And then, you know, then all bats in North America, all bat habitats in North America will have a PD in them. So yeah, you were asking like where where I'm filming. So I may not go back to Bracken Cave this year. Maybe I will, but we we are filming other caves in the Texas Panhandle where a PD has been detected. And caving is so cool. This is the other reason why I got into making a film about bats. The first time I went like caving, like legitimately caving, was in 2007 in Panama. And it was the coolest experience, like, ever. Like, we went into this cave, and it was super, you know, Indiana Jones kind of deep, deep, deep into this cave. And, you know, sometimes we had to, like, duck our heads underwater to, like, get into the next cave cavity. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And there were bats in the cave. And so I became, you know, bat, bat lady cave 
cave women, you know, Batwoman, cave woman. And so um, it just sort of, you know, evolved that way. But yeah, I'll be hoping to go into some of these, you know, caves and back into the mines in Michigan and the caves in Texas. And then I'm also going to be visiting the lava tubes in California. And there's a scientist here in Northern California who's doing, she's taking samples from the caves and doing experiments on killing the white-nosed fungus, this PD, with UV lights in the cave. But her question is, if we kill the fungus, PD fungus, what else are we killing? What other good kind of bacteria are we killing? So would killing the fungus using UV lights like harm the entire ecosystem of these caves? And so that's the question that she's trying to answer. So those are the two scientific uh, studies that we're following in the film. And the film is basically the, the story trajectory is going to be, you know, will these scientists you know, will they or will they not find a way to stop the spread of this disease, you know, and save America's bats? Is there a way that people listening could somehow get involved, help you make this absolutely film possible, follow yeah. along with it? How should they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you were asking about, like, you know, how am I deciding when, you know, to when to go film again? And, and usually it's when I have the money to go film again, I'll go film again. And so what I've been doing is hosting house parties. And this is so far, this has been my way to raise funds while I'm making a film because I, I just don't have it in me right now to do a, a 30 day Kickstarter campaign, running a crowdfunding campaign to so much out of you and it's just very time consuming and very emotional in and of itself and I just knew I didn't have the time to do that and make a film at the same time so so I started doing these house parties and the house parties are kind of a fun way for me to create more of an audience for my film and find more people to follow you know follow what we're doing on Facebook and then also raise funds for the film so um I have a GoFundMe page, and anybody that wants to, you know, give me a donation, <laughs> um, it's tax deductible. If you make it through the GoFundMe page, uh, we're fiscally sponsored by Wild Lens, which is a 501c3. You can either go to theinvisiblemammal.com, and there's a button right on the front page that says support this film or be a part of this film, something like that. And you click on that, and it and it should take you to information about how you can make a donation. If you want to go straight to our GoFundMe page, um, I made a tiny URL, and it's called tinyurl.com slash texasbats. You can also find The Invisible Mammal on Facebook, and there's a link to the donation page on the Facebook page. So you can just go onto Facebook, look for The Invisible Mammal, and you'll find us. So other than The Invisible Mammal, how can people keep up with just what you're doing, see your past films, maybe follow along in your current yeah. and future adventures? So I have another film series called Velo Visionaries, which is my uh, short film series about visionary people who also happen to ride a bicycle for transportation. And these films have been pretty successful as well, like in the festival circuit and I also look at these films as like poetry it's like you know when you write a poem like all you're doing is you're sitting there with a piece of paper and a pencil or you know nowadays your computer and you just write and it's very easy like in terms of an art form filmmaking is not easy because you have to have all this equipment and you know, people and money and you know whatever so Vela Visionary started because it's, it was a way for me to make more simple films about something that I was interested in. 
So velovisionaries.com, you can go there and you can check out these films about visionary people and you get to kind of go on a bike ride with these with these people and get into their heads. So it's interesting. And then I'm on Instagram, K T I E C H E. And if you want to, you know, follow my my Instagram feed, I'll post about the Bat Project and, you know, you'll get to, you know, see what I see when I do bike religion, you know, every time I go hiking, you know, we're on a hike now, big hiker. (laughs) (laughs) We're on a break from our hike. (laughs) You can follow me on Twitter as well. On Twitter, I'm Velo Vogue, which was a bicycle fashion blog that I used to have, V-E-L-O-V-O-G-U-E. I mostly post about feminism and the resistance and biking on Twitter. (laughs) Sometimes I post about bats too. (laughs) That's how to find me and I'm on LinkedIn as well. All right, and you might find it hard to believe but we're at the end of the show so what I do at the end of the show is I always ask a guest if there's a final thought they want to leave the audience with. Well, my final thought is that I'm really excited about this second half of the hike that we're going to go on. <laughs> like, I actually can't wait to show you the rest of the hike because we, we mostly just stopped here to, like, refill our water bottles and then we decided that this would be a good place to do this, you know, conversation. <laughs> So if you're, if yeah, on your weekends, you know, once you're finished with this, you know, hopefully my motivation to get back to the hike will inspire you to go on a hike, you know, yeah. My final thought to all of you is be excited about what we're about to do so you'll be excited about doing something yourself. Yes, <laughs> yeah. All right, and with that, we can call it a show. So thanks for sitting down here and drinking coffees and eating a bunch of desserts Erica bought us and recording this. All right, well, thank you for having me. And now it's that time where you head to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 96 with Kristen Tiesch. And there you will find photographs of Kristen in action, photographs from her movies, photographs of bats and batnados, along with links to all of the topics we spoke about in today's show. And if you head to our website, you can see the trailer for The Invisible Mammal, a fresh new trailer to get you interested in her upcoming documentary. And while you're there on your internet machine of choice visiting our website, why don't you go ahead and drop us a line here at the show? There are a number of ways to do so. Send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or send us a text or leave us a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And if you would, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice and subscribe to the show. And if possible, rate and review. And if you want to do us a great big favor, share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help was provided by Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. And thanks again to Alpen Ventures Unguided, whose sponsorship helps make this show possible. And a reminder to all of you that you can get 10% off your 2020 Summer Alps adventure by using code GOOUTSIDENOW. Next time on the show, come back March 16th for Ted Madison, a.k.a. Ranger Ted. He's an actor, outdoor guide, father, upcoming podcaster, and founder of Wonder Outside. He has lots of great stories to tell, and he's a damn good guy. So come back March 16th for Ranger Ted. 
See you then. <laughs>